Hello and a very warm welcome to Changing World New Opportunities. I'm Louise Farrand. And I'm Lorna Kennedy. In our second season of the podcast, we're interviewing senior investment figures from Master Trust Pension Schemes. We're asking them to reflect on the investment challenges facing them as DC leaders. What are they excited about and what's keeping them awake at night? If you'd like to find out as soon as a new episode comes out, you could subscribe to our email alert at www.dcif.co.uk and click hear more. Or you could follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at DCIF underscore UK. On with the show. Hi, Lorna, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you. I'm in a sunny Edinburgh today. The rain has stopped. Excellent. The rain has travelled to Devon. It isn't here right now, but it is definitely threatening. I don't think it was raining when we recorded this episode with Liz Fernando, CIO of Nest, but we were in a room with no windows. That is true. In one of our members' offices, but I don't think it was raining. I don't think so. And despite the no windows, it was a very interesting chat. Oh, it was amazing. I didn't know much about Liz before I met her. I've only met her once before, but um, she was telling us how she started off as a, a smaller companies analyst which is an interesting background. Yeah, I enjoyed that she said she wasn't there when the sectors were handed out and ended up covering a tobacco and miscellaneous, which was very self-deprecating of Liz. And I, I felt very sort of typical of how understated she was in our conversation, but also how rich that conversation was. We learned so much from her. I think particularly for me, the thing that really stood out was what she said about how shorthand can be dangerous. People were, prior to 2022... People were using the shorthand of bonds equals safe and equities equals risky. And she talked a little bit about how they were already approaching that at Nest and how they always try and do a better job than just mindlessly taking shorthand. I just thought that was such a profound lesson for us all to learn, particularly in the wake of last year, but just more generally. So important not to make assumptions, isn't it? Yeah, no, you're right. And I guess the other thing that shone through for me was the obvious sense of responsibility she feels to all the Nest members, which I'm sure will shine through in the podcast. Absolutely. We'll, we'll stop waffling and pass on over to Liz. Hi, Liz. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you very much for having me. I wonder if you maybe start off with telling us a little bit more about yourself and your career path. Where How have you, how have you got to where you are today? <laughs> I'd love to pretend there's some grand design, but that would be my interview answer. But as all of us know in real life, it never quite works like that. So I actually started as a small companies analyst in the UK, analysing, of all things, the uh, tobacco sector and the miscellaneous sector. So I was not in on the day when uh, when sectors got assigned. But that, that was a fabulous training ground because you spend a lot of time meeting management, talking to management learning how to ask the right questions, interpret answers, read reports and accounts and analyse them. So yeah. for a career as a fund manager, absolutely fabulous training ground. I then became a European fund manager. This was all at Lloyd's Investment Managers as it was at the time. And spent so spent the first couple of years of my career with them and then joined USS as head of equities. And at the time, it was a tiny scheme. It was £7 billion. I think there were 24 of us in the investment team and half of it was externally managed, half was internally managed. And I joined to run a European fund, which was, I think, £120 million. And over the years, it grew 
And you've know, obviously now it's a seventy-three billion pound fund. It's got an enormous investment team, and um, the European fund I I was running peaked at about three and a half billion pounds. So just an enormous change. And then unfortunately, fortunately, they decided to close down their active equity business, which meant that I was out looking for something else to keep myself entertained. <laughs> it also coincided with COVID. So I did properly have COVID off. How was that? It was actually deeply annoying because my other half was also not working at the time. And so the rarity of both of you not being working and therefore having a long period where you got travelling. And the borders all got closed. Of course. A week after I was told my services weren't required. So I did do gardening on my gardening <laughs> days. There was nothing else to do. And the garden looked fantastic for about the next year and a half <laughs> and is now gradually going back into dis- disrepair. <laughs> yeah, Nest were looking for a head of long-term strategy. And I knew Mark Fawcett from various places previously. And so he told me what they were looking for. And I thought, oh, I'll have to dust off my bond calculations because I haven't done any of those for a while. But it sounded like a really interesting challenge. And so I joined yeah, as head of long-term strategy almost three years ago. Yeah, career has evolved within Nest, became CIO at the beginning of May. Congratulations. Do you miss your company analysis? Do you miss looking at these smaller companies? <laughs> I do. During results season, I do still have a quick look at some of them. So I still have my, uh, do have a few PA shares. I don't tend not to do individual companies because of all the compliance challenges, but I do have a few. And so I, yeah, I quite like checking those and ones that used to be big positions in my portfolio. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, you must feel quite attached to them. You're not meant to get attached to shares. No. Yeah, and management teams, that's the other one, just watching management teams and how they evolve, because you do get to know the chief execs and the CFOs and watching them move around is quite interesting. Go on, yeah, I can imagine. Well, you've talked a bit about bonds. 2022, we've been picking on everyone and getting them to talk about 2022. What a year that was. I mean, have you seen another year like it? It was extraordinary. But actually, interestingly, when I was dusting off my bond calculations, I did work out the price moves that I would see on 30-year bonds if yields moved by 50 basis points. And at the time, I didn't quite believe the numbers because the price moves were so huge. Could this really be right? Obviously, it turns out that it is absolutely right. And the thing I think we all forgot was we were so fixated on yields, we forgot about prices. And ultimately, it is price moves that matter. That was a real wake-up call, I think, for the industry. We'd had this incredible downward trend in bond yields for the last, what, 20 years, really? And that was quite some reset we got. It isn't normal to have a negative yield on a bond. That was the crazy bit. The speed with which we moved back was shocking, and the cause was definitely shocking. But negative yields on bonds, it's not normal. It's not healthy. So what are you taking away from last year? Taking away that shorthand can be really dangerous. So people talk about, and particularly for people as they approach retirement, people were using the shorthands of bonds safe, equities risky. Um, What we all got reminded of is that bonds are not safe unless you hold them to maturity and they don't default. Mindlessly moving people into 
gilts or index-linked gilts as they approach retirement, irrespective of the price of them, is just lazy. People shouldn't have been doing it. At Nest, we hadn't held government bonds, developed market government bonds for a very long time because we didn't think that we were getting rewarded for the risks that were there. So we were an investment grade, which suffered nearly as badly as gilts, but I feel happy that we at least had thought about it and were trying to do a better job than just mindlessly taking shorthand. That's such a good point. I know. I guess your scheme was obviously impacted as everybody's was, and it's those people who were approaching retirement that that would suffer the most. What was the makeup of Nest? How many people do you have in that cohort who were impacted? We don't have that many because auto enrolment started 11 years ago, I guess now. We have this demographic bulge, so most of our members are young and we have very, very few retirees. And so, and most of the people who will be retiring now have very small pots with us because they weren't contributing for any length of time. And they probably have DB pensions or other pension savings that they can fall back on. So I think, I'm trying to remember how many people moved into our post-retirement solution this July. I think it was a thousand or so. So compared to our membership of 12 million, really small numbers, but we still care. And so that we did get incoming calls of why's my pot fallen and saying to someone, well, you've actually got more purchasing power for an annuity now. It really isn't very comforting. It might be true, but it's not a message they want to hear. No, that's true. So I suppose there's the, the difficulty of things like last year, which is very hard to forecast. And then also that individuals are not very good at planning for their retirement or telling you exactly when they're going to retire. So how do you take that into account, that uncertainty, when you're planning your investment strategy? We have a series of target date funds. So when a member joins us, unless they tell us otherwise, they go into the fund that aligns with their expected retirement year. And if they don't tell us what they want to do at retirement, we send them on one of two paths. So if they've got more than £10,000 in their pot at retirement, we send them into our post-retirement solution, NGRF, Nest Guided Retirement Fund. If they have less than £10,000 in their pot, we put them into our post-retirement fund, which broadly tries to make sure that they will hold their own in real terms. It does take a bit of risk, but it's liquid type assets. And if they end up in the post-retirement fund, then we try and manage their investments through a series of different funds so that they get an annual income from us, which is maintained. They have a little pot that they can call on for rainy day money, and they contribute to a later life fund, which aims to let people buy a deferred annuity, 80 or 85, I forget which, so that they will never run out of money. So yeah, that's how we manage them if we don't know anything about them and they don't tell us what to do. This might be a daft question. Somebody joins and they get put into the correct target date fund. What if they change their mind and decide they want to retire five years before they thought they would? Yeah, that's actually fine. They can do that either by changing their target date fund to one that aligns with their anticipated, their new anticipated retirement date, or by just telling us they want to take their money out. If they're not in the right year, they won't quite be on the right place in the glide path. But fortunately, we've got so much new money coming in, 
even if we've still got illiquid assets sitting in some of those portfolios a bit further away from maturity, we've got a natural market. So there's never any problem with people getting their cash out if they want to. You've got lots of liquidity. Again, a lovely problem to have. What made you choose target date funds rather than going down the lifestyle route? I have to admit, I don't know the entire history to this. It is brilliant because it does mean that we can take a look at market conditions and decide when we're going to make certain asset allocation moves and when we're not. So unlike lifestyling, it's not a it's not a mindless decision. We can and do delay moving people out of equities and into more investment grade or more liquid assets if we don't think the market conditions are right. You tend to delay by a month or a quarter rather than I doing it. That we can try and use that little bit of flexibility it gives us works really well for us and we think it works well. Tell us a little bit about private markets. I, I know you've obviously it's a big area of focus for Nest. How have you responded to the, the latest news and uh, the Mansion House Compact, for example? It's really put the focus on UK specifically versus global. I'm quite interested in, in your take on that and that sort of UK focus in particular. Yeah. So we've signed the Mansion House pledge because it was completely aligned with our existing targets. So it really, yeah, really wasn't a challenge for us. Interestingly, we had a challenge with investing in UK private assets because of the old employer-related loan legislation that came in after the Maxwell issue. And because those regs were written with a single employer scheme in mind, and they said you can't invest in unlisted assets that are, are related to your employer, obvious reasons. When you've got 900,000 employers, the safest route for us was to just not do unlisted in the UK to make sure that we weren't running that risk. Yeah. The rules have been changed. And so for large multi-employer schemes like NEST, we now have a much narrower cohort who are, we have to make sure we're not investing in investments related to them. And it broadly captures our board of directors and then a few senior execs. So that's a much easier problem to manage. We are supportive of investing in the UK, but it's always financially driven. So we won't favour the UK over overseas investments. We're open to investments in both. We don't like the idea of government telling us what to do. That sits very badly. But where we see attractive opportunities... We're absolutely open to looking at them. So, so it was signing Mansion House was easy for us because it did align. So, where are you just now then in terms of your private market exposure and how's that split out? We're still quite early in our program. It's growing reasonably fast. So we have a target now of thirty percent of our assets in illiquids, which would include real estate. We've got about one and a half percent in private equity at the moment. There's about 6% in infrastructure and renewables and probably something similar in private credit at the moment. We commit to our managers a certain amount of capital they can draw each year. We want diversification. We don't want it all going in the ground on the same vintage, if you like. And we want sector diversification, geographic diversification. So there's this tug of war going on. I, I would love to have more private assets I can allocate to the different portfolios, but at the same time, I don't want the managers spending money without 
you know, really buying assets we want. And so there's a, a kind of, we're trying to maintain discipline whilst increasing the exposure. And because we're growing so fast, you have to run really hard to keep those percentages stable, never mind grow them. So we will get there, I'm sure. But then the managers have good visibility then of the cash flows. So then from an investment point of view, that's extremely attractive. Yes. And that is one of the ways that we have navigated the whole high fee structure. So I think it's it's pretty well known we won't pay carry. We don't pay performance fees. And one of the ways that we have reached that accommodation with the managers is because we can give them visibility on what their capital is likely to be. They don't have to do fundraising every year. We're not going into fund vintages. It's an evergreen structure we've set up. They know what's coming. They can see how much they will earn. It, you know, it, it, the partnership works. And what asset classes would you like to have that you don't haven't managed to get access to yet? We're about to start a procurement for timber. I think that's probably the last big private market asset class we're not in. There might be scope for things like royalties. If something with a nice steady income stream would work really well post-retirement. So that's something we might look at, but they're typically much smaller niches and whether we could put the amount of capital to work to make it worthwhile. There's always this balance with us about trying to keep it as simple as we can while still having access to as many different flavours of assets and return structures that, as we can. But we're not keen on adding lots and lots of tiny things that don't move the dial. I know this feels a ridiculous question right now when everyone's campaigning like mad for more private markets in DC, but do you worry about a sort of crunch where there's suddenly DC investment in private markets explodes and there aren't enough good assets left that you feel are a good fit for Nest as a pension scheme? Yeah, I mean, we've seen it a little bit already in infrastructure. And so US are obviously also very big investors in private markets. The competition and the number of assets when I was with them that we missed out on by small margins because other people were prepared to pay that little bit more than we were was annoying, particularly for the deal teams because they would have worked for months on some of these transactions and then to lose out by a tiny amount. They were probably the right things to lose with hindsight. Some of the projects have not gone quite as well as or were quite as risk-free as perhaps they were claimed to be during the due diligence. but just demoralising for people. Do you think that will get worse? I just think about this explosion of DC money that we are already seeing and is going to become even more. I think ideally you would see some of the funds getting together and collaborating and cooperating on doing deals with smaller funds. They probably can't afford to have their own infrastructure to do this. So pooling together to share the overheads of this probably makes sense something not dissimilar to the GLO structure that's been set up for infrastructure. You could see something like that potentially working on the private equity side. And that way you're not competing so much. You're using your money to have better buying power, bigger ticket sizes, but you're not actually competing with each other. So our next big topic is net zero. I'm sure you have a lot on your mind about net zero, but um, it would be great to hear a little bit about where Nest is on its net zero journey and what you'd like to achieve. Yeah, gosh, where to start with that? Um, We have a net zero commitment. We have a transition plan. So we are committed to a 
30% reduction in emissions compared to a 2019 base by 2025, 50% by 2030, and then uh, net zero by 2050. We're ahead of target so far, but these things don't always go in a straight line. We're comfortable with where we are. We're very firmly of the opinion we want to see real world change. We're not just after getting lower numbers in a portfolio. So we really emphasize the engaging with companies, trying to get them to change behaviors, change where they're putting their capital investment so that you do get real world impact. Us just selling an asset to someone else makes no difference to anyone. And so we will use divestment if we think a company just isn't listening or they don't have a strategy for making that business sustainable. Because at the end of the day, if it's got no value, if it's got no license to operate, it's not worth anything. So protecting members by getting them out of those sorts of businesses makes sense. Where we can, we try and encourage change. How do you engage then? Do you do that in conjunction with the investment managers or do you do it yourself? Yes, we, we ask our managers to engage and to be active owners of the assets they, they steward on our behalf. We have a RI team who do engagements on topics and we use coalitions and working groups, so Climate 100 Plus. So we, yeah, we use as many different routes as we, as we can. Very related to net zero, we're seeing lots about biodiversity and TNFD coming up. How are you thinking about that? It absolutely makes sense. The, the links between climate change and biodiversity, natural capital, they are flip sides of, of the same problem. I have to admit my heart sinks a little bit with the reporting because TCFD reporting is already a mammoth task, takes up an enormous amount of the team's time. And I would rather the team were actually doing rather than writing about doing. And so the idea of TNFD coming on top of TCFD, and I can't imagine they will want less reporting because it would suggest it's a lesser standard. So that worries me. We're looking at adding timber to the portfolio. We're also looking at adding natural capital as part of a thematic equities portfolio to sit alongside our climate-aware strategy, which is, is much more transition-orientated. So we're thinking this thematics portfolio will have climate mitigation and adaptation, natural capital, and social factors within it. Complements that we're then covering all our bases of the things that matter to us, and we're not polluting or making it hard to understand where the returns are coming from in the different portfolios. But yeah, I think natural capital is going to grow and disclosures and the amount of data that companies are going to give us will grow. It's a beast, isn't it? We've just done a piece of research. Well, not DCIF did a piece of research not that long ago looking at different TCFD reports and huge disparity between the reports with them being the first or, or second ones. But just beasts and, mm. and, you know, led us to question, as we were talking about it, who are these for? It is a really good challenge. So say, I'm, I'm all in favour of transparency and telling people where their money is invested, giving them visibility on what we are doing on their behalf. Absolutely makes sense. But who reads or what sense you make of tables of CO2 intensity I honestly don't know. One of the concerns might be that it does encourage this behaviour of just divesting. 
to try and make the numbers look good. And if it's not impacting real world, it's not doing any good. And I suppose another thing we found in that report is it's impossible to compare like with like because everyone uses different assumptions, but you don't want to then mandate further to get everyone on the same page. But at the same time, then what use is the reports if no one is, if it's apples and pears? And I have to confess, we, because we rely on our managers to give us their carbon intensity, uh, scope three emissions, if they are using different data providers, when we add them up into the portfolio aggregate, we're already comparing apples and pears within even our own numbers. And yes, the answer would be that we go and we calculate all of that data for ourselves, but the cost and time involved in that. I mean, data seems to have become the latest wheeze for getting money out of everyone. So we're not terribly keen to go down down that route. It's very difficult, isn't it? It is really hard. And as you say, it's about the real world implications rather than what the number is on the page. Oh, well, more work to do. <laughs> I was going to ask you what a typical day held for you. Is it just podcast after podcast or...? <laughs> I don't think there is a typical day. I mean, if my office days and my working from home days are quite different. So my office days generally have a lot of meetings and a lot of talking to people and checking in on things because there's, you know, that's what being in the office together is really good for. My home days tend to be much more about reading and thinking because you've got fewer distractions. And so, yeah, my days tend to polarise a little bit depending on, on which one I'm doing. In an ideal world, I would be reading strategy notes and thinking big thoughts about where markets are going and where economies are going and how we should be moving the fund. And in reality, that do spend a lot of time worrying about that. But yeah, there's a lot of other things that come as well. And what's your balance just now then? How often would you be do in meetings or in the office doing meetings and how often are you at home? So typically two or three days a week in the office. Some weeks it's more, some weeks it's less. Yeah, and usually Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday now seems to be my normal. You know, um, and Liz, what, what keeps you awake at night? The idea of letting people down. We do a lot of research into our membership and a lot of them are typically lower income earners, typically don't have, from what our research says, don't have a lot of savings to fall back on. And so doing the best we can for them, probably taking more risks than they are comfortable with, but really trying to protect them for longer term outcomes and giving them visibility on the type of income that they could rely on us for in retirement is really, hate the idea of letting someone down. That must be such a pressure with such a big membership. And as you say, people who don't have savings to fall back on the the DC cohort for whom DC really is everything. How do you, how do you use that in your work? Do you tend to come back to that question quite often when you're making decisions? So I try and I encourage the team to think about the big trends, the big things that's changing. I, I talk about we're trying to spot when the tide is changing, not when the waves are coming and going. Because we're not going to be nimble enough to get every single thing right. But something like that shift in the bond market last year and what that might now mean for equities is the kind of big call that we need to get right. And so pulling yourself back from the distraction 
and going back to first principles and thinking really hard about if I buy this today, what return am I getting and what risk am I taking on today? And is it worth it? It's really, yeah, just trying to keep anchored and not get too blown around by you know, all of the chatter about are we in recession, are we not in recession as a central bank going to raise another 25 basis points or not. Most of the time, those sorts of things are inconsequential to the long-term trend in markets. It must also be very challenging when something long-term, something really seismic happens that you could never have predicted, like Russia and Ukraine, that sort of event. That must be incredibly difficult. How do you respond as Ness to something like that, which you couldn't really have foreseen unless you really had the best crystal ball in, in the world? Yeah, and our asset asset allocation building blocks are, as I call them, quite clunky. We don't choose individual markets. We allocate developed market equities and emerging market equities as two big lumps within that. So we did have actually a very quick debate. We did the research very quickly on how we should think about Russia and whether we should maintain our investment there. And the board decided they, they didn't wish to remain invested. And then the index providers decided to kick Russia out anyway. So it actually wasn't a problem. It was quite interesting watching us go through that thought process because we should be financially driven all the time, not politically or emotionally driven. That analysis was quite interesting and different board members reacted in different ways, which is also quite interesting to see. So we are now thinking about maybe we should have some kind of ongoing evaluation of countries and perhaps we should be taking a more proactive approach to who we give money to by default and who we perhaps should not give money to by default. So thinking more about the political risk? Interestingly, not not just the political risk, but also the environmental, the climate risk, because if we're thinking particularly about sovereign bonds at the moment, but if your economy is going to get demolished because of climate change, either mass migration of people or industries fail because you're underwater or all of the things that we know climate change can bring, the chances of your debt being repaid are that much worse. And so we're trying to look more balanced in a more balanced way at environmental risk, governance risk and social risk to decide who, as I say, by default would get our money and who would have to give us some kind of premium to have that right. So we're still at the early stages. We've, it's not yet become a policy thing. And if you had one ask of asset managers, what would it be? What can we do for you? <laughs> this is a bit like the last question on Desert Island. This is, isn't it? Your one luxury. You can have a few. You can yeah. have two or three luxury items. I would really like them to do what they say they're going to do. I've been an asset manager myself and I've worked with an in-house team. And so I've had the privilege of sitting with people and watching how they make decisions and how they build portfolios. And I've also seen process documents that they write on how they make decisions and how they build portfolios. And I know that those two things do not always align. And so doing what they say they're going to do is really important. And also giving us performance metrics that align with how the portfolio is being built. So Brinson attribution models are lovely, they're industry standard, but most fund managers 
when they're building a fund, particularly if they're doing it bottom up, they aren't thinking about the decisions in that way. And so you've got no alignment between how you're thinking as a manager of building your portfolio and how you then explain that performance to your client. And so it, it can be a bit frustrating when you're sitting on the other side of the table, understanding really what was going on. One of our managers was exposed to SVB, unfortunately, and in a conversation with them about what due diligence they'd done beforehand and what with hindsight they would do differently next time, what they've changed in the process to try and prevent that happening again. It was all right, but it was quite defensive yeah. rather than just being reflective. Yeah. Which is what you want, isn't it? Yeah. We say we partner with managers. We do partner with managers. I believe we've only, we've only sacked one in, <laughs> in the whole of our tenure. So most of our managers have been with us since the beginning. And your partnership does mean being honest. And open. Any other anything else on your wish list? I think I'll do for now. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, Liz, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really, really interesting getting more of an insight into Nest, and I've learned a lot. Yeah, me too. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to Changing Worlds New Opportunities, brought to you by the DC Investment Forum. Head over to dcif.co.uk where you can read all the research the DCIF publishes, follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting platform. See you next time.